Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from Thomas Friedman, who has been the New York Times foreign affairs op-ed columnist since 1995. He is also a three-time winner of the Pulitzer Prize. Today he'll explain why this is such a pivotal time in history and why it should be no-labels moment. Let's listen in. Hey, Jim, thanks so much. And, and Nancy, uh, thank you for having me. Um, it's a great day to be speaking to No Labels. Um, uh, you know, what I thought I'd do, uh, take 15 minutes, maybe just to explain to you why I think um, this may be your moment, um, uh, your moment in history. And um, uh, and this does relate to a, a book I've been, been, been working on. So um, the way I would basically explain this moment we're at right now is that um, uh, I think of history in terms of Promethean moments. I'm, I'm a great Prometheus fan. So you remember Prometheus was the Titan um, uh, god who steals fire from Mount Olympus and gives it to human beings to build civilization. And um, I would argue there have been three great Promethean moments in the last 600 years. The first was in around 1440 with the invention of the printing press. Um, the second was in the uh, um, uh, basically 1700s with the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and the birth of the Industrial Revolution, um, that moment when capitalism met the Industrial Revolution, was an incredibly destabilizing moment uh, for the world because it blew us out of the feudal era into this new industrial age. Um, and it launched uh, really uh, 150 years of instability, two world wars, etc. cetera, uh, you know, communism, socialism, fascism, imperialism. And eventually um, we settled down on a way to govern uh, this um, uh, this industrial revolution in a stable way. And what we settled on was this thing called the welfare state. Uh, and the welfare state took many forms. It had a, a hard left form in, in Russia and China. It had a more center left form in, um, uh, in Western Europe. And then it had uh, a kind of New Deal form in America. And basically the, um, uh, the welfare state was a set of walls, ceilings and floors. Um, uh, that would basically help cushion people in through this incredibly destabilizing moment of when capitalism met the Industrial Revolution. So the and, and politics became a left-right debate about how high you think the wall should be, how thick you think the floor should be, and how hard you think the ceiling should be. So um, conservatives uh, wanted lower walls and thinner floors. And um, uh, liberals and progressives wanted higher walls to protect against trade and competition and thicker floors. And they both sort of um, uh, agreed that the ceiling, the ceiling was about the pace of change and, and that was kind of, kind of a given. And what that era produced was this grid, which we call left-right politics. So left and right was born in 1789 in the French parliament uh, in the debate over the constitution because the aristocrats sat on the right and um, uh, their uh, rivals um, uh, you know, from the common folks sat on the left. And it's amazing when you think about it, those political labels have been with us now for almost 250 years. That left-right binary grid, capital versus labor, big government, high regulation, small government, low regulation, open to trade, closed to trade, open to new social norms, you know, um, resistant to social, new social norms, open to immigration, closed to immigration, and in recent years, green versus growth. And that left-right grid really defined politics throughout the industrial 
West, okay? Really throughout the whole industrial world until now. <laughs> because you may have noticed political parties all over the world have been blowing up basically um, in the last 10 years. Uh, the Tories completely blew up in, in England. They became, they went from really a, a sort of a, uh, a, a pro-business, um, uh, you know, strong foreign policy party uh, to a Brexit party. Um, the Labour Party became Marxist. The Liberals just disappeared. Um, I would argue the Republican Party has blown up um, under Trump. I think uh, you'll see the Democrats really straining uh, when they take power again. Um, France is the only country in the world that has a leader without a party and an opposition without a leader, um, Macron. I have no clue who governs Italy today, but I know it's not the Christian Democrats, okay? Um, and in fact, Ukraine and Italy both have former comedians. Um, something's going on. All these binary parties are clearly blowing up. Now, the sort of surface explanation is that the reason it's happening is because social networks, and it's made us all more partisan, more, more partisan. And I'm sure there's a lot of truth in that. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that there's been a fundamental change in the plumbing and wiring of the world. And what's happened, actually, is we've entered our third great Promethean moment. Uh, only this Promethean moment is not built on the printing press. It's not driven by an industrial revolution. It's driven by three simultaneous non-linear accelerations, basically, in three giant forces, what I call the market, mother nature, and Moore's law. So um, uh, uh, basically, the market for me is globalization. And um, uh, if you put globalization on a graph, if you track it by internet usage or you know, world travel or whatever, you know, people always ask me, is the, world, is the world still flat? Oh, baby, it is flatter than ever. Just think of what we're doing here right now, okay? So globalization has accelerated, looks like a hockey stick. Um, that's the market. Mother nature is climate change, biodiversity loss. You put that on any graph, it's accelerating. And um, Moore's law, of course, is a proxy for technology. Moore's law being that the argument that the speed and power microchips will double every 24 months, which they basically are doing. So we're actually going through three nonlinear accelerations all at the same time with the three largest forces on the planet. And what it's doing is making the world what I call fast, fused, and deep. And a fast, fused, and deep world can no longer be governed by this binary left-right grid. And that's what's actually straining against all of these parties. So when I say the, and I'll give you then an example of each one, what, what I mean. So when I say that the world is fast, what I'm talking about is the pace of change and the fact that the half-life of skills now just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So if you think about the 1700s, um, uh, when the Industrial Revolution was born, um, the average um, uh, life expectancy of a male in the 1700s was about 37, 38 years. The dominant technology of the 1700s was this thing called the steam engine, and it actually lasted a whole century. That meant that you basically had three generations of uh, adult males who worked on the same technology. That is, three generations worked on the same technology, the steam engine. In the 1800s, the dominant technology was electrification and the combustion engine. Average life expectancy went up to the low 40s. That meant two and a half generations worked on the same basic technology. 
And then we hit the 21st century. You know, I began my career in Beirut in 1978, working on something called a typewriter. It was a device, kids, that if you pressed a key, it created pressure on a roller and created a letter. Yeah. Um, so the typewriter actually was the dominant writing tool for 100 years. And I was there in the last few years when I started. Since then, I've probably had 30 different writing devices. Lately, lately, the last one being a watch. So instead of having the same technology used by three generations, now you have three generations of technology used every three or four years. So what that is doing in a fast world is that it's shrinking the half-life of skills. Every skill you have becomes less and less relevant the longer uh, time passes. You know, I often remind people, you talk about fast world. I wrote The World is Flat in 2000. I sat down to write it in 2004. When I wrote that book, when I sat down to write it, Facebook didn't exist. Twitter was still a sound. The cloud was still in the sky. 4G was a parking place. LinkedIn was a prison. Applications were what you sent to college. Big data was a rap star. And Skype was a typographical error. All of that happened since I wrote The World is Flat. So we're talking about a pace of accelerating change. Now, how does that then play into politics? Well, the way it plays into politics is we all read about those knuckleheads in Hollywood who went out and hired a guy and paid him a half a million dollars to get their kids into USC. And I wanted to call those parents and say, um, excuse me, but if you're going to bribe someone to get your kid into a college, could I suggest you bribe to get them into IBM's in-house university? or Infosys' in-house university? Because if I showed you IBM's in-house university today, or AT&T's in-house university today, which I profiled in my last book, you would be asking me, Tom, who do I bribe to get my kid into IBM U? Well, what's that about? Well, now we go to the world we're in, this third Promethean moment. So in the old grid moment, left-right grid moment, it was very binary. I government educated, you business employed. But what if the pace of change now is so fast, I business can't wait for you government to educate? Because that's what's happened. So IBM, AT&T, Infosys, the Indian high tech company, which is building a hundred acre campus in Indianapolis right now, have all built these amazing in-house universities that are based not on just in case learning, gonna teach you, um, you know, uh, philosophy just in case you need it. It's all built on just in time learning just-in-time skills, which you can then learn and download and learn them exactly when you need them, constantly updated. So you, if you, if, if, uh, if Joe Lieber and I are working in the same job, Joe might get an email from, from, uh, uh, from the in-house universities telling him that, um, hey, Joe, you know, um, three other people doing your job are now taking these courses. And by the way, Joe, we've estimated that your job will expire in 28 months and 17 days, okay? So it's all based on just-in-time learning. And these are phenomenal education engines. So again, the old system was I government educate, you business employ. That was binary. But when the world is fast, I business now have to be in multiple states at the same time. I have to be educator and employer. And today, what's going on is you're seeing the merger of traditional education platforms and these company platforms. So Northeastern University in Boston just signed a deal with IBM that Northeastern students 
can now take courses on IBM's just-in-time learning platform. And IBM employees can take ethics and philosophy at Northeastern University. That's where this is going. You have to be in multiple states at the same time. So tell me which party, Republicans or Democrats, stands for enhancing the ability of companies in America to become, to build in-house universities. Is that a left issue? Is that a right issue? No, it's you have to be, you need an ecosystem solution. So that's what happens when the world gets fast. What happens when the world gets fused? I said the world's getting fast, fused and deep. So fused is when through globalization and through climate environment, we are no longer interconnected. We're no longer interdependent. We are fused. Our reality is fused. I was in New Zealand, you know, last year, breathing the air from the forest fires in Australia. Suddenly, you know, Australia's behavior or misbehavior on climate is affecting my lungs 2,500 miles away. But in a fused world also, so I do a lot of work with Qualcomm. Qualcomm, I profiled them, Erwin Jacobs, their founder in my last book. Qualcomm made the inside of your iPhone. That was not made by Apple. That software and those chips were made by Qualcomm. They're actually made by a Taiwanese semiconductor company based on Qualcomm designs. So I was talking to Don Rosenberg, the chief uh, legal counsel for Qualcomm a few weeks ago, and he was explaining to me the relationship between Qualcomm and Huawei. Huawei being the Chinese telecom giant that you recall that the Trump administration has basically gone to war against. And Don was explaining why this is a problem in a fused world. He explained that for Qualcomm, Huawei is their customer, their supplier, their competitor, their partner, and their shared global standard setter. In a fused world, they have five different relationships with Huawei. So if you then come and impose a binary grid on that, a left-right grid on that, and say, this is, we're back to the Cold War China enemy, you know, uh, America friend, you impose a left-right grid on a fused world, you cause enormous problems for, um, uh, for any global company, which is why one of the least covered stories the last four years has been the war. There's been a full-on war between the US semiconductor industry and the Trump administration over this whole technology policy to China because in a fused world, it just doesn't work for them. Now, what about deep? So deep, you know, um, my wife, some of you may know has just opened a new museum in Washington and built this museum. It's called Planet Word, the world's first word language museum to promote reading and literacy. It's amazing. It's just amazing. It's gonna be the hottest museum in Washington. Come see it. We had to close for the pandemic for the last few weeks, but it's awesome. So, and, um, uh, and I, we always track what's the word of the year because the online dictionaries now, they actually can track which is the most searched word of the year. Uh, last year, the word of the year was justice. Interesting. That was at 2019. Um, and I told Anne, the word of the year for me in 2020 is clearly it's deep. Because haven't you noticed? We saw suddenly reach for this new adjective deep. We started calling every, it had to be deep. It wasn't just fake. It was deep fake. It wasn't just medicine. It was deep medicine. It wasn't just research, it was deep research, deep surveillance, deep this, deep state, deep mind. Everything suddenly became deep. Why did, there's no global lexicographer who ordered us to use this adjective. Why did we all suddenly reach for the word deep? Oh, and by the way, I'm a big listener to popular culture. And you may have noticed that the song that won the Oscars last year by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper was called Shallow. 
But what was the main verse? I'm off the deep end, watch as I dive in, I'll never reach the ground. Crash through the surface where they can't hurt us. We're far from the shallow now. Oh, Nancy, baby, we are far from the shallow now. So what is going on? The reason we all reach for this term was we intuited that technology was going so deep now. It was indistinguishable from science fiction. We couldn't just say, that's a fake. We had to say, that's a deep fake. That fake is so good. I can't tell if it's Nancy or Nancy's avatar, okay? We can't just say that's medicine. We have to say that's deep medicine. They're, they're toggling my DNA. Now, why does this become important? Because in the old system, I government regulated, you business innovated. But what if business is innovating now at a depth and speed where I don't even know where you are? Then I'm Senator Orrin Hatch asking Mark Zuckerberg, Mr. Zuckerberg, if you give your product away for free, how do you make money? The regulator now has no frigging clue where the innovator even is because the innovator is so deep, so fast. We in the New York Times, we had these leaked emails from Boeing uh, last year. And my favorite is a Boeing engineer is talking about his FAA regulator. This is in leaked emails. And he basically says, my regulator is so clueless. Watching him watching me is like watching dogs watching television watching dogs, watching television, okay? That's what happens when innovation gets so deep, the regulator has no idea where you are. So the old binary role again, I regulate, you innovate, it collapses. And of course, we're seeing this around lots of things, particularly this big uh, search engines and social network companies. And I got a really interesting, so, what, so again, how do you govern this? The only way to govern it is with an ecosystem solution. So I'll give you an example. I was, um, I was in Israel last February and I ran into, um, I was at a dinner with Amnon Shashua, who's Israel's premier computer scientist. He founded a company called Mobileye, um, uh, which was bought by, it's an autonomous driving technology that was bought by Intel for $18 billion, a company of 40 people. Because um, uh, Intel is going to be a car company. Um, they are they are headed to take on General Motors. So they bought Mobileye as their autonomous driving platform. And I ran into Amnon, he said, have you ever driven in an autonomous vehicle? I said, Amnon, I, just was, I was just at Google in Mountain View and I rode on their Waymo car. He said, Mountain View, that's a grid. Try driving in an autonomous vehicle in Jerusalem where there are no two parallel streets. So I came up to Jerusalem, rode in his car, amazing experience, you know, going around here, pin turns, crazy hills, side donkeys, camels, Jews, Arabs, everything. For an hour, we drove around Jerusalem in an autonomous vehicle. Amazing experience. We get done. He tells me an interesting story. You know, to develop an autonomous vehicle, you need to actually develop and test the car in the same place because you're constantly iterating. And um, uh, But to do that, it turns out you actually need an insurance protocol that defines what constitutes safe self-driving. Otherwise, anything you hit or anything that hits you, you get sued. So you need a, you actually need a tire insurance protocol that says, well, if an autonomous vehicle stops six inches from the curb, it's safe. And if you run into it, it's your fault. The problem is the rabbis who run Jerusalem had no clue about self-driving cars. So what happened? Mobileye convened an ecosystem of Volkswagen, their car supplier, Mobileye, 
the rabbis who run Jerusalem and the Ministry of Transportation in Israel. And collectively, they wrote the new law together. They created an ecosystem solution. It was so good that Yandex, Russia's Google, now tests their self-driving car in Jerusalem. And China took the entire Israeli law and just translated into Chinese and made it their law for safe self-driving. So what do you see in all three of these examples? What you see is the old binary left-right solution can't work. Which party stands for an insurance protocol for safe self-driving? Is that left? Is that right? Is that Democrat? Is that Republican? All these new problems can only be solved by ecosystems, what I call complex adaptive coalitions, where you'll have business, labor, social entrepreneurs, um, uh, local government all working together. And our two-party system, not just ours, all these binary right-left two-party systems all over the world, they fight against these ecosystem solutions. That's why so many of them have just fallen back on tribalism, you know, on these sort of tribal identity issues in order to maintain their adherence. And so um, what is this really telling us? There's a real parallel with um, what's happened with computing. And I'll close with this thought. Um, I, was, uh, I was at IBM. One of the places I go to learn is IBM's research lab. And uh, they set up a day for me to tutor me on quantum computing. And I, mean, I haven't even taken introductory physics, so they really have to break it down you know, for arrows to Toyland for Tom. And um, Dario Gill, uh, IBM's uh, chief uh, scientist, um, tried to explain to me the difference between quantum computing and classical computing. And so he said, Tom, you have to understand classical computing is like, it's binary. It's like flipping a quarter. Um, uh, you're either heads or tails, you're either one or zero, one or zero, one or zero. And if you can flip a quarter a billion times on a transistor and generate a million ones and zeros, you get compute and storage. Quantum computing, he said, is like spinning a quarter. You are in multiple states at the same time. You're left and right, up and down. And I stopped him at that moment and I said, Dario, quantum politics. You just described the difference between classical right-left binary politics and the politics that the modern age we're in requires now. Because to govern effectively today, you have to be in multiple states at the same time. You have to be left and right, up and down in some kind of collaborative coalition. And that's why I believe if you look around the world and you ask me, who's the most effective world leader today? In my mind, it's a woman named Angela Merkel. And what did Angela Merkel get her PhD in? Quantum chemistry. I'll stop there. Thank you, Tom. That's, that's terrific. Um, uh, we have a number of questions. Let's start off with, with Mac McCarty. Well, Tom, good, uh, good afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us here. We all Great appreciate you, it very man. much. Uh, fascinating presentation. Uh, it's kind of like hearing a 30-game winner just keep winning 30 games every year. Uh, so you've uh, you, you kind of turned my brain a little bit, but let me stick to my question I was going to ask before your presentation. I think it'll fit, and it may it may actually uh, fit right into your ecosystem theme. U.S.-China relations, you've written a lot about it. It's going to be one of the, I think, the first foreign policy tests for President-elect Biden. Uh, 
uh, I think any of these major issues, we've got to figure out some new, some new type of relationship with China, but that depends on President Xi and the Communist Party, not just us. I think building coalitions will help, but I don't think it's enough, in my opinion. Your thoughts? Well, thanks, Mac, and great to see you. Um, look, this is the biggest, um, you know, there's, there's a whole set of issues, Mac, where I think the challenge for President-elect Biden is going to be, he's going to say, I was just here four years ago. I mean, how much could have changed in four yeah. years? Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. A lot. A lot, a lot has changed in four <laughs> years, okay? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it was my view that um, uh, this is no secret. Donald Trump was not the American president Americans deserved, but he was the American president China deserved. Yeah. Um, uh, that somebody had to call the game and Trump had the balls to do it, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, he got that right. Unfortunately, he got everything after that wrong, uh, in my view, which was um, you had to call the game, but you had to do it in a smart way. And the way to do it was not bilaterally, make it a, um, a fight between Trump and she over who has the biggest tariff, but you had to make it a global coalition of um, of the world versus China over who has the right and fair and rules for 21st century commerce. When you make it personal between you and she, you leverage every Chinese nationalist on his side. When you make it the world versus China, you leverage every Chinese reformer on our side. Um, So that that was, I think, that there's just a wrong approach. Um, uh, At the same time, Look, if there are 10 answers, 10 things that we should do to deal with China, Mac, um, I would tell you one through nine are all about us. Mm-hmm. We need to be investing in infrastructure. Mm-hmm. We need to be investing in human capital. We need to be you know, investing in our best companies. Um, you know, the Chinese, I mean, they, they look, you know, Don and I were talking earlier, um, Don Barron, I, you know, we've basically been governing ourselves two out of every eight years. You know, sort of every two years, sort of the the the, the, yeah. the the stars and the sun and the moon align that we can do something big. You know, at home, you know, in 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 that same time period, China's gone through three five year plans. Now they've made their mistakes; they're not all perfect, but they're investing in. You know, I, I'll just step back, Mac. You know, I came to Washington in 1988 from Be- from Beirut and Jerusalem, and when I came to Washington, um, big business, American business was still big in Washington. And if you ask me, what's the biggest change in Washington since I've been here, is that American business has disappeared in the conversation. I think it's been one of the most damaging things that's happened. Why is that? Because American business stood for what I call the big five. The big five things we invested in under every great presidency, Republican and Democrat, uh, I mean, going back to, uh, to Lincoln, if not earlier, what are the big five? Infrastructure, government-funded research to push out the boundaries of physics and chemistry and biology so our best companies can pluck off those flowers, Um, education, um, uh, immigration, and the right rules to incentivize risk-taking and prevent recklessness. And we have always invested in those big five, and I can go through them for any administration, whether it's Eisenhower and the Highway Act or Lincoln and the National Railroad. Um, And we stopped doing that. Well, China didn't stop doing that. And, you know, I was in China. I was invited to a track two dialogue in China uh, uh, two years ago now um, with Li He and some of the top Chinese leaders, myself, Neil Ferguson, um, Martin Wolf from the FT and uh, uh, a couple others. And um, 
I began, because I've always been a hardliner on this issue. It's, that's why I agreed with Trump on it. And um, I, I, they asked me to give the opening presentation and my Chinese interlocutor, who was the former research director of the foreign ministry, this is a direct quote. He said to me, Mr. Friedman, you're too late, we're too big. You're too late, you're too big. This was an off the record conversation. So yeah, I got the unvarnished truth. Now, um, uh, I said to him, you know, that's that's not humble. That that's not humble. Be be careful. That's not humble. But at the same time, I have to tell you, in the four years since Joe Biden was here, China's become it's become its own weather system. I will tell you. So you come to an American chip company and you tell them you can't sell into China, and they say, Well, you might as well just shut my doors. Because if I can sell, I can't sell there, but Samsung can, and then I'm supposed to compete with Samsung in Europe. Um, uh, not to mention Chinese companies, I'm dead. You know, I don't think people miss, there was, there was a big part of the whole Trump-China dialogue, the, the fight people missed. China did not buckle. We imposed 25% tariffs on basically $300 billion of their goods. And you know why they didn't buckle? Because their exports to America compared to four years ago as a percentage of their total GDP is down to like two and a half percent. Yeah. Their domestic market is now so big that what American exports were for them 20 years ago, compared to, to under when Mac, when you guys were there, compared to today, yeah. um, it's a fraction. Yeah. People don't realize how big and powerful this weather system is. Now, the beginning of wisdom in dealing with them is we have to get our own act together. We cannot go on being dumb as we want to be. We're just going to be dumb as we want to be, you know? When you do that against a rival like China, look, with Russia, it didn't matter, okay? Um, Russia sold us vodka, caviar, and Matryoshka dolls. That was all, you know what I mean? But when you're talking about a global competitor like China, um, and they're very serious people, if you are not serious. Now, the other thing that's happened with China, and this is gets to the structural problem, and Mac, for this, I have no answer. So for 30 of the 40 years, of the last 40 years. So if you figure it's 1979 to 2019, that was an epic in US-China relations. I would say that epic is over because 30 of those 40 years, China sold us, to keep my metaphor, they sold us shallow goods, stuff you wore on your back, shoes you wore on your feet, socks you wore on your ankles, solar panels you put on your roof. They sold us shallow goods. We sold them deep goods, computers, chips, and software. And they had to buy our deep goods because they couldn't make them. What's happened in the last 10 years, and that's why Huawei is the tip of this iceberg, is China can now make deep goods. Now, when we bought only their shallow goods, we said, we don't really care whether you are authoritarian, libertarian, or vegetarian. We don't care what your political system is. Um, we're just buying your shallow stuff. But wait a minute, when you wanna sell us deep goods, Huawei 5G that goes into the sidewalk outside my house, into the walls of my home, it, into the computer system of my business, that fact that we don't have a shared trust relationship is going to be real is really problematic how can i buy your deep goods and because all deep goods by the way are dual use how can i sell you deep goods so we have not figured this out i if i were joe biden the first thing i would do is be a convene a panel that says what are we going to do how do we ring fence certain things that are really important and how do we just say you know other things we just got to let it go 
Because after what is, I mean, what does China want? They want to occupy Chinatown in San Francisco. I mean, like, what what exactly are we worried about? I mean, you can drive yourself crazy around all this stuff too. So we we really have to have an adult internal conversation about what is it we really want to protect, um, and what is it we're just going to have to let go and and find another way. And so, my two answers to your questions: job one is get strong at home, because that's all China respects, and they can smell your, they can guess your power from a hundred paces. Um, but the others are we have to have a really smart conversation about what happens when you go from shallow to deep trade with China. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, next, uh, uh, Pitch Johnson, next question. Okay, hi. Um, the question is, earlier you emphasized all the, uh, such practical education on business matters, technology, and the people that don't go to the IBM university, you making air, but if you have a whole generation of people who don't know about history and the arts, what does it do to society? Well, it's a very good question, Pitch. And again, um, it's always about the balance. It's getting the balance right. That's why I gave you that example of Northeastern. You know, I can take your, your just-in-time courses, but you then can take my just-in-case courses. Now, if you talk to Infosys, um, what they'll tell you, and it's really apropos of your question, Pitch, because... There's a huge shift going on inside these companies now. What they're actually not looking for problem solvers, they're looking more for problem finders. It's a big difference between problem solvers and problem finders. You know why they're not looking for problem solvers anymore? Because a lot of them are now you know, relying on no-code software, where you can just tell the machine what you want and it writes the software for you. So that's where AI is taking us into the realm of no-code. What they need are what you're talking about in some ways, Pitch. People with backgrounds in art, literature, science, music, history, who, who the Steve Jobs person, who's a problem finder, who says, you know, here's what people would like. Here's what people need before people even know they need it. So you're seeing actually a shift going on inside these companies. So I don't in all mean to suggest that those courses aren't important. Um, uh, I'm a huge liberal arts uh, humanities guy, big believer in that. Got my BA in Arabic, which just shows you how crazy I am. Um, but uh, uh, I think that um, uh, it's, it's all about getting the right balance, you know, in these companies and uh, in our education system. And some of it's gotten out of balance. Okay, thank you. You bet. Okay, next there would be uh, Alan Schwartz. Hey, Tom. Hey, Alan. Good all to right. see you. So I'm always amazed at the way you can pull all this stuff together, as I've told you. And uh, there's so many ways to go. But I want to follow up on something Pitch said a little bit. As you and I have talked in the past, the reason China got the president they, they wanted or they deserved was because of how many people in America felt left behind by globalization and all these forces. And if, if we're going to not have different parts solve it, if business has to be part of you know, this whole universe, and you talk about how they're educating at the higher end. IBM also has started something with community colleges. Yep. Big program. So yeah. away from IBM, should more businesses be working with the community colleges and, and, and schools like that to help educate you know, a, a different part of the population than the AI population to be able to take on jobs that are actually unmet in our, in, in, you know, in our economy? And then could the infrastructure build around, you know, where some of those jobs could be out into rural areas? Could, could, that, could that be business starting to have a role instead of being the enemy of the 
you know, unequal outcome to wage earners. Do you see that as, as part of this, you know, group all coming together yeah. the way you're De- talking definitely. about? Definitely. I mean, it's, it's both a necessity, Alan, and an opportunity. It's a necessity because um, if you're running a school, a university, a community college, and you don't know what the skills that business is looking for today, you're, you're, you're not, you're really stealing money from the students. You know, you're educating them for jobs that don't exist anymore. So getting that intimate, you know, contact is important. And IBM, uh, uh, you know, Google has a whole thing for, you know, teaching data analytics now. All, all, all these companies have actually a lot more programs than people realize. Um, but, but more generally, you know, um, you know, if, again, I go back to when I came to Washington, Norm Augustine, gathering storm, gathering storm. You know, I mean, it was business that was warning about what was coming and working with government to get the right infrastructure, education, research, immigration policies aligned. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, we, we've all just seen, you know, we, we're, we're all so lucky to have this um, uh, vaccine that is so much a product of immigrants, globalization, you know what I mean? Um, all, all the things that have, people are, are, are denouncing and want to throw out, you know, with the, the bathwater. It's all about obviously keeping them in balance. But I, I think one of the great, you know, my my um, my biggest beef with Democrats is they always talk about redividing the pie, but never talk about growing the pie. So they have a convention and they have everybody at the convention. I mean, they have every identity group, every minority. It's wonderful. I, I celebrate all of it. There's just one group they don't have. Entrepreneurs. Um, they never celebrate entrepreneurs, innovators or entrepreneurship. And um I'm all for redividing the pie. We need to, but you got to grow the pie at the same time. And um, what's happened for a lot of complicated reasons, partly business bowed out of Washington, because what the hell, if two thirds of my business is overseas and two thirds of my customers are overseas, do you really want to spend your time or hanging around Washington, DC? And so, um, and I really saw that shift. You know, now when big business comes to Washington, you park your private plane in Northern Virginia, take a Prius into town, check into your hotel after dark where no one sees you, have your 7 a.m. meeting with the proper lobbyists who you can lobby to change subsection four, paragraph 3B on your right to repatriate your income from Suriname and then get out of town before anyone can blog about you, Instagram about you, write about you, tweet about you. And that is no way to, to run a country. So, so that, I'm just you know, to finish on, you know, I agree, but also as the, you know, the allocation of the growth that we've had of that pie, the return to capital and the yeah. return to labor has been so divergent that a business just worries about that growth that they can have overseas. We're not going to be exactly. able to. So if, well, that's if the they second, do the yeah. retraining and yeah. government did the infrastructure into the regions where those new jobs are. I'm trying to see how the, you know, instead that's of being an opposite yeah. side. Yeah, they, they, it's, it's all about. You know, I do a lot of a lot of my thinking. Um, it derives actually from studying the natural world. You know, um, and this all started with me studying globalization and realizing that globalization becomes so complex that how do I understand this? And I realized the only thing as complex as the globalized world today is the natural world. Okay, and um, uh, and what do we learn from the natural world? That which ecosystems thrive when the climate changes. It's those that have complex adaptive networks where the different elements of the ecosystem network together to maximize their resilience and propulsion. As in nature, so in human politics. It's people who build complex adaptive coalitions 
that will thrive amidst these giant climate changes we're going through. And that means business, philanthropists, educators, social entrepreneurs, and governments all working together. And if I took you to the small towns in America that were thriving, that's what they all have in common. Great, thank you. Okay, uh, next question uh, is, uh, is from uh, Jeffrey Rosen, uh, followed by Andrew Brickman and then uh, Brian Rogers. So uh, and, uh, Jeffrey Rosen thank first. You. Thank you very much, Tom. As always, excellent presentation. Let me return to your flipped quarter versus spinning quarter Please. quantum analogy yeah. and ask you, I'm gonna also come to the Middle East. Do you think the realignments that have been negotiated and occurred in the Middle East are more the result of flipped quarters or spinning quarters? <laughs> and the other question, the related question is, what do you think the implications of those align realignments are for the Biden's administration's ability to uh, address Iran? Uh, really good questions, Jeff. Um, uh, so I wrote about this a little a few weeks ago. Um, Again, it's another example where the world has changed in a big way in the last four years. So um, uh, let's start with that uh, as, as the Biden administration comes in. How is the Middle East different? Because um, they left it with the Iran deal. Um, and the big change in the Middle East is, is, is all revolves around precision missiles. That basically there's been an underground war, uh, which actually has taken place overground, but it, it's, it's been out of the news for most of the part between Israel and Iran because Iran has basically been engaged in a relentless effort to transfer precision missiles uh, to its proxies in Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, and, and Iraq. And um, why is that important? Well, in 2006, Israel fought a war uh, with Hezbollah in Lebanon, at which time Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah only had dumb rockets. Uh, those dumb rockets meant they had to fire 60 rockets, but they could only hit the northern half of Israel for one, but they had to fire 60 rockets at a target, hoping it would hit, one of those rockets would hit. With a precision GPS guided rocket, you can fire just one and you have a very high probability of hitting your target. Well, if you just had 60 of those and you hit the 60 top targets in Israel, including the Demona nuclear reactor or the Haifa port or the Intel factory or Ministry of Defense, you could do enormous damage, especially to a high-tech economy. So um, Israel is, this is their number one strategic uh, issue. Now it used to be just Israel's obsession four years ago. Well, in between then, um, two years ago, Iran launched a precision guided missile attack against Abqaiq, the um, Saudi, one of Saudi Arabia's biggest oil facilities. Um, they launched 20 um, uh, drones and, and um, cruise missiles and uh, 17 of them hit their targets. That's an 85% success rate. And that was from a long way away. So that sent a shockwave through Israel and the Sunni Arab world. Um, uh, but the double shock was that uh, President Trump did not retaliate. In fact, Trump told them just the opposite. Um, we're not the world's biggest oil producer. We don't need, we're not fighting your wars anymore. We're happy, we'll send you some troops, we'll send you some Patriot batteries. Um, but the biggest thing Trump posted about was I'm going to do that and you're going to pay for them. In fact, he, he got them to pay uh, for this buildup. Well, the combination of those things was it's a complete shock to the region. It drove home the fact that we are leaving. We are the world's biggest oil producer. Um, and, um, and basically that 
created a internal alliance in the region where Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, and Israel decided they needed to build their own regional coalition to counterbalance Iran, no matter, and could no longer count on the United States. So that was the shift that made that possible. Um, that was the that was the fundamental shift in the place of the last four years. Now, overlaid on that was ironically um, the 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 Trump peace plan. Um, uh, it it produced this Arab-Israeli breakthrough entirely by accident, and that's not to take anything away from them. I'll explain in a second. But um, they actually came to the Middle East to produce Israeli-Palestinian peace. And in the end, they produced Arab-Israeli peace, and the Israeli-Palestinian thing failed. Um, you know, it reminded me, growing up in Minnesota, I played hockey growing up, you know, and we all know, you know, I, I love professional hockey and the North Stars. And there was always a joke, you know, people, because people would say I went to the hockey game to see skating, but they actually went to see the fighting. So there's an old joke, you know, I went to a hockey game. And I, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. You know, is like, um, uh, you know, the, the opposite of what, what, what I went for. So um, in the Middle East, Trump made, went to make Israeli-Palestinian peace, and he ended up making Arab-Israeli peace. So why, why was that? Um, basically, what happened was uh, Trump's peace plan, uh, designed by Kushner, um, uh, went to an extreme. It basically tested something Bibi Netanyahu had said to American diplomats for 20 years. Test me. Test me. Just test me. Just give me a peace plan that will take care of my political needs. Test me and I'll surprise you. So basically, Kushner tested him. He basically handed Bibi the pen, he and Dermer, their ambassador, and said, you, you, you tell me what you need. And that was our plan. Uh, Israel gets to a next 30% of the West Bank with all the settlements. Palestinians get 70%, disconnected, loosely connected, with a capital outside of Jerusalem that they can call Jerusalem. That was the guts of the plan. And um, uh, Kushner gave it to Bibi. And, um, and the settlers, the core of Bibi's base, refused to go along with it. Because the settlers weren't at 70%. They weren't at 60%. They weren't at 50%. They were at 0% for a Palestinian state. So what happened was Bibi couldn't accept Bibi's own plan. And Kushner exposed that. Um, so what happened then was that Bibi, uh, with, under the pressure of the American ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, no relation, this is getting into the weeds, but I'll just give it to you quickly. Friedman came to Bibi and said, just annex your 30%. And here, Trump gets a lot of credit from me. Trump said, no, you can't get your 30 unless you recognize a Palestinian state on the 70. So Bibi was completely up a tree. Now from another window walks Yusuf Alateba, the UA ambassador in Washington, sees this. They're looking to formalize their relations with Israel to counterbalance Iran and says, have I got a deal for you? If you will forego annexation, we will open full normal relations with you, Israel. Gets Bibi out of the tree and opens the way for Arab-Israeli peace. So that's basically what happened. Now, where Biden's coming in, he's got a very interesting opportunity here because um, there is no two-state solution anymore. Um, there is no way these two parties will ever agree on a two-state solution, an end of conflict. But there's a potential for a two-state reality. And what Israel needs, if not a two-state solution, it needs a two-state reality where it doesn't have to absorb two and a half million Palestinians. 
And how do you do that? And this would be Biden's, I think this would be his, a great move. Come in and announce that we are, we're moving the embassy. We're going, the embassy is moving to Jerusalem. But people didn't see what happened. Trump didn't just move the embassy to Jerusalem. He actually closed all the consulates. So he closed the consulate in East Jerusalem that represented the Palestinians. Um, and David Friedman now is the US ambassador to Gaza also. So Trump created kind of a one state reality because we only now have an embassy, no more consulates. So if I were Biden, I'd come in, I'd say to Bibi, we're keeping the embassy in Jerusalem, but we're opening a consulate in Ramallah. And we're gonna encourage all six Arab states to move their embassies from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, but to also open consulates in Ramallah um, and create a two-state reality, even if you can't have a two-state solution. So there's lots of real opportunities there for Biden, but um, Trump did a good thing. And, um, uh, and at the end, uh, by, by standing up to be beyond this, he opened the way for this other opportunity. Okay, Andrew uh, Brickman. Yeah, hi, Tom, um, fellow Midwesterner as well. I, my question really surrounds, I wanna circle back to education. We've had a number of speakers on these calls, uh, Larry Summers earlier uh, in the year, as well as Larry Hogan, just to um, talk about the Larrys. Larry's uh, obviously governor of Maryland, and I was asking him how we reinvigorate our, our public education system because I kind of feel like the wealth gap can't be addressed unless we get to, to the education gap. And we've seen that in COVID. Um, one of the interesting concepts Larry brought up is he said, you know, technology is gonna be such that at some point, the best teachers are gonna teach all the students and we're gonna be able to um, flatten, flatten the world, so to speak, on our education system. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm forever hopeful that we can get education to everyone in a, a more uniform manner so everyone has an equal chance of success. I'm just interested in your thoughts given your technological bent and just some of the things you've mentioned about what I'd call corporate education and some of the education sharing that you mentioned at Northeastern, if, if you have any thoughts on that matter. Yeah, you know, I, do, I, mean, I, I think about my, my, so my wife was a public school teacher before she went and taught first grade reading. Um, my daughter just opened a school in San Francisco called Redbridge. Um, and she, for four years, worked with Sal Khan uh, and built the Khan Academy Lab School. So we think about all this stuff a lot uh, 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 in our house. Um, you know, there is no, uh, we, we kind of know the formula. Um, early childhood education, as much as you can, giving kids a head start on reading you know, um, uh, before they, they start, you know, kindergarten and first grade. Um, and then um, quality public schools. And they're, they're, it's, it's all meat and potatoes. I saw this through my wife's experience. When you have a great principal, boy, a great principal can turn around the worst school. And when you have a bad principal, the, bad, the worst principal can, can make the best school you know, awful. But it really comes down to the quality of the teachers and, and, um, and the principal. And that's really about everything we surround them with, we have supplemental learning opportunities, you know, um, uh, good resources. I mean, I, since my wife was a public school teacher, I'll tell you one thing, the biggest education philanthropists in America are public school teachers. My daughter did Teach for America also in DC and was a DC public school teacher. So I, I saw this because nobody donates more paper, pens, crayons, cupcakes, um, uh, on an annual basis than public school teachers uh, out of their own money, you know? So, you know, valuing public school teachers, um, elevating them. I think it was just horrible the last four years that we had a secretary of education who never went to public school, 
um, didn't value public school on was doing everything to you know shift resources from public school. Now, is there a problem um, with teachers unions uh, being resistant to change in big urban areas? There is, and that should be fought. You know where where it's true. Um, but uh, you know, my my wife was in the teachers union, and in two thousand eight, her union voted to give up their raise, so um, other teachers wouldn't be fired. Um, uh, so there are unions and there are unions. You know what I mean? And some of these big city unions are are out of control um, and have been resistant to change. Others have not. You got to find a way to work with them. Rahm Emanuel, you know, managed to do that for a while in Chicago, you know, a little bit to get change. But um, your question is exactly right. You know, um, the the problem is I don't believe that it's hybrid systems that work best. Having a teacher in the classroom, you know, working with kids, interfacing with kids, and you know, working um, obviously with technology, that hybrid is the best solution. But everything's really got to move to a to focus on student agency. Okay, um, that how do you give this? My daughter teaches me the kids the will and skill to learn on their own, because in a world where jobs are changing this fast, the single most important skill you can give to kids is having the will and skill, uh, interest, passion, and curiosity to learn on their own, because the pace of change is so quick that um, that's gonna be the single most important survival mechanism. That's a philosophical point, uh, but for my money, you, know, you can't invest enough smartly in public education, not only um, as a tool of advancing people and giving them uh, tools, but as a social, I, I went to public school in Minneapolis and St. Louis Park outside of Minneapolis. I mean, um, we, we don't mix our society. Any, we don't have a military that does it nationally you know we have public school system is the one place where you can still socialize you know everyone together in america and i think it's so important for that um and that's why we wanted to send our kids to public school because we grew up in lebanon basically a place where everyone sent their kids to their own confessional school you know and saw what what happened there so um you know i i it's it's not rocket science. We know what to do. It's about getting the investment and the leadership, getting people, the quality people to go in these jobs. I live in Montgomery County, Maryland. We have a lot of teachers who can't afford to live anywhere near the school, the public school in my, uh, in my neighborhood. Well, that, that's messed up. You know, I mean, so, you know, um, it, it's about priorities, but that would be a high priority for me. Okay. Final question. Uh, uh, from, from Brian Rogers, and then we're going to go to, uh, to Bill Galston for some comments on this momentous time in the, in the, uh, in the history of, of No Label. So first, um, uh, Brian Rogers. Yeah, thanks. Hi, Tom. Um, hey, Brian, how are you? I couldn't be better. Um, looking forward to your new book. And, Thank you. and back to the, uh, the theme of fast, fused, and deep. Um, does a fast world continually get faster? Does it ever slow down? What are the consequences to, um, I suppose, acceleration and, and fast acceleration? And what does that mean for society? And what happens if, if that trend slows down? It's a good question. You know, in, in physics, my, my teacher, my tutor, Craig Mundy, who I think you've met at the Sun Valley, um, uh, points out to me that, you know, um, you know, what comes after acceleration in physics is something called jerk. And then what's called snap, crackle and pop. So uh, there is a there is a concern that if the acceleration on top of acceleration on top of acceleration, it can get out of out of control. 
Um, you know, to me, Brian, it's all about finding a way to anchor people. What, what, what has our society been going through um, for Trump, during Trump, after Trump? What, what's this moment about? It's about people dealing with multiple vectors of change, of rapid change uh, in their lives. That, you know, 10 years ago, a lot of Americans went to the grocery store and the woman at the cash register wasn't wearing a baseball cap. Then they went into the men's room and there was a woman next to them and she seemed to have a penis. Then they went to work and their boss rolled up a robot next to their desk and it seemed to be studying their job. And it all happened at the same time. People's sense of home, their sense of social norms and their sense of work all got disrupted at the same time. And so no surprise, they looked for someone who would stop the wind. And Trump's genius was the image of a wall. It wasn't just about the Mexican border. The whole idea was I can stop the winds of change. And of course, and so that's why the, the, the world today is, um, it's really divided between wall leaders and web leaders. You know, my, my, my thank you for being late ends with my favorite song by Brandy Carlisle um, uh, called the I, E-Y-E. And the main verse is, I wrapped your love around me like a chain, but I never was afraid that it would die. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. You can dance in a hurricane, but only if you're standing in the eye. We're, we're in the middle of a hurricane, okay? And basically, there's a group of leaders around the world who are saying, I can stop the wind. And what we need are leaders who say, no, no, I'm actually going to help you build an eye, an eye that can move with the storm, draw energy from it, but be a platform of dynamic stability, like riding a bike, not frozen stability. And that eye, that to me is the community, the healthy community, where people can feel connected, protected, and respected. And the great struggle in politics going forward is going to be between the wall people and the eye people, you know. Um, and uh, and I and I think it's to me. That's where no labels, you know, has to know also. It can't just be no labels. You, you, there is a, there's a, there's a core, there's a, there's a fight in the middle of this thing that that is a, that has to be called, which is, are you for walls or are you for eyes, basically, you know, and um, and I think that you should have a label on um, that you should be clearly for it, and and that's why I've spent so much time studying communities where people can feel connected, protected, and respected, because that's really how you anchor people in a time of incredibly rapid change. Tom, thank you very, very much. Uh, it, it, it's, been, it, it's been a wonderful hour. And I'm gonna now turn it over to, to, uh, to Bill Galston for a few closing remarks as, as well as, a co as comments on, uh, on where No Label stands. And I won't introduce Bill because everybody on this call knows him, so. Well, Go Tom, uh, I think in this group, the eyes have it. <laughs> I like uh, that. I like that, Bill. Uh, and I, you well, should know, Bill, because of what you wrote, which uh, I think Nancy or Don Bear sent me, no labels is in my column tomorrow. Well, that's great. And I thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but that's not the only thing I want to thank you for. Uh, I'll just speak for myself. I wish I had as many ideas in a, in a year as you do in an hour. <laughs> uh, it's you. hard. It's hard to keep up, uh, but uh, it's 
it's it's worth it's worth the try. If we Thank had you. another hour or two, I'd love to pick your brains about the relationship between the economic dimensions of what you're talking about on the one hand and the military and political dimensions on the other. Our discussion about the Middle East was all about politics and the military. Our discussion about China was all about economics. Well, you know, somehow we have to bring those two conversations together. Uh, Definitely. And, uh, but at any rate, uh, let me just pick up on something you said at the very beginning of your remarks, almost a throwaway line, that this might be no labels moment. Well, we sure think it is. Uh, and to, ex- you know, to explain, you know, to explain why, let me just pivot off something you said in the middle of your remarks, namely that the left-right political dimension, you know, is organized is organized around a set of issues that are being overtaken by events and different configurations of political parties are needed. Absolutely right. Uh, But political parties, as I'm sure you would agree, are sticky, right? They don't respond rapidly to change. And to, you know, know, to parody Don Rumsfeld, no labels has to go to politics with the parties we have and not the parties we'd like to have. And that's that's the business that's the business we've been in. Uh, it's not it's not the only important question, but in the here and now, it's really vital. And this this brings me to the moment of celebration that we're having for No Labels. We just celebrated our tenth anniversary, and hard on the heels of that celebration was a celebration of our largest victory. Uh, and the note I sent around this morning and the New York Times story that appeared today and the story that appeared in Politico today and the stories that have been appearing have all have just you know, woken up to the fact that no labels and the sorts of activities and groups that we've spawned in the House first and now in the Senate actually moved a mountain, right? Uh, it looked as though we were going to leave the 116th Congress with no help for small businesses and the unemployed and the people facing eviction and the people facing hunger and the you know and the healthcare providers who don't have enough money to distribute the vaccine you know all of those things were looming and the efforts of our problem solvers in the house and the informal group that that has gotten together in part through us in the senate uh, said no we're not going to leave town and leave the American people in the lurch. Leadership was stuck, right? And the effort, the efforts of this little bipartisan community that we've nurtured through thick and thin for 10 years unstuck it. We made leadership an offer they couldn't refuse. And at least they had the brains to take us up on. Uh, so, you know, so in the here, you know, in, in the farther future, everything you said has to be incorporated in our, into our playbook. In the here and now, we had to deal with the parties we have and the problems before us. We didn't have the luxury of, like Steve Jobs, of, you know, of problem seeking, right? Because the problems that the problems that we had found, the problems that were, you know, hitting us on the head were too big to ignore, and the consequences of ignoring them would have been too catastrophic. So somehow, and this is my concluding thought, we have to be able to put the short-term and the long-term together in a more productive relationship and conversation. 
You know, everything you said is a guide to the future, but everything we do is a response in the present. How do we coordinate those two things? I sure wish we could have you back to discuss that question. At any rate, our undying thanks as an organization for your presentation today. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Tom Friedman describes this as a Promethean moment, a moment that destabilizes and changes the world around us. He says the right-left party politics that have existed for 250 years are in the process of becoming obsolete as globalization and technology have sped up exponentially. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast.